This morning I'd like to invite you to turn with me, if you will, to the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And as you do, you might remember that uh, we have been journeying through this very wonderful chapter in the, in the Gospel during the season of Lent with a spotlight that has been particularly focused uh, on the one-on-one ministry that Jesus has as he connects with the little children and, and, uh, and, and, and then with, with others, with earnest seekers from a rich young man to a, a blind beggar. If you ever, ever had a question as to what to expect from your own encounter with Jesus Christ, what he would do with you, uh, each one of these little vignettes would be just enough to convince you of the words that, that are in that chorus, how high and how wide, how deep and how, how long, how sweet and how strong is his love, how lavish his grace, how faithful his ways, how great is his love for you. We, we, we've already looked at the pictures and seen the compassion of Jesus and his care as it pours out. But this morning, on this Palm Sunday morning, I want you to turn with me to the, the few brief verses, just four verses of teaching, that really make all of the difference upon which all of the rest of the chapter seems to hinge. Now, without these four verses, all the pictures before and all after would be rendered really meaningless. Uh, they would be sweet, they would be sentimental, but without verses 31 through 34 at the middle of it, there really, really would be no substance to those encounters. By the same token, with these four verses, the entire drama that is triggered on Palm Sunday takes on added force as we move our way through the week and finally arrive at Easter. So let me read the passage that is there. Luke 18, uh, beginning of verse 31. Jesus took the twelve aside, and he told them, We are going up to Jerusalem. Notice we. It's an invitation. This is a journey to be taken with his disciples. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him. They will insult him. They will spit on him. They will flog him. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. There's a painting in the, in the Manchester, uh, England uh, City Art Gallery. It's entitled The Shadow of Death. It's a, Fabulous painting, and you have to linger to look upon it to really kind of catch the significance. The setting is really in a, in a carpenter shop in Nazareth, where Jesus, as a carpenter plying his trade, is standing at the workbench. He's stripped to the waist, and he's by a wooden trestle, and he's looking up from his work. And, and it's a picture, really, of labor and of fatigue, and in his eyes there is a look of pain, even agony. He's been working hard, and for a brief moment, he is stretching from his labor, and both arms are out from his side. And from that pose, the evening sunlight uh, streams through an open door, and it casts a shadow up upon a wall, a, a, a dark shadow which is made into the form of a cross. And in the foreground of the painting, and to the side, you have Mary, who is kneeling at her work, but her, her face is turned to the shadow. And in looking at the shadow, there is a startled look on her face. It is as if she is seeing the picture of everything she has feared from Jesus' birth. Now, historically, the painting is a product of an artist's imagination. But theologically, it is utterly profound 
because it captures the essence of the life of Jesus Christ. From the beginning of time, in the book of Genesis, we find that there is, in fact, a shadow of death cast over the seed of Eve. In the Psalms and in the prophets, that seed of Eve was sharpened in focus and given a name, the Messiah. And from the birth of Jesus, the shadow of death took on the shape of a cross and became his constant companion and his ultimate destiny. Twice already in the book of Luke, Jesus has spoken of the cross in very clear and unmistakable terms. In Luke chapter 9, verse 22, he said that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Again, in Luke chapter 9, verse 44, he says, Listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. And then now, here, for the third time, Jesus takes the twelve aside and he tells them, We are now going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written, about, by, written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. But on the third day, he will rise again. He is in the final days of his full mission, that last journey that takes him to Jerusalem, and to an appointment with the cross. And so it is time really for straight talk. And here he takes the twelve aside to describe more than just death. He, he goes into the details. He talks about mocking and insult and flogging and torture. And, and there was nothing really metaphorical about those words. They are, they, they are driven like stakes, straight talk and hard facts. And at the bottom line, while he speaks of the cross, he speaks of the resurrection as well. On the third day, he will rise again. And that is as tangible and as solid as any of the other hard facts. Even more, none of this is by chance. He adds in detail that this is all part of God's plan. For everything, he says, everything written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. From the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, our faith is centered upon that fact of the cross of Jesus Christ. I love the way the missionary scholar Samuel Zwamer put it. He says, if the cross of Christ is anything to the mind, it is surely everything. The most profound reality and the most sublime mystery, literally all of the wealth and glory of the gospel, is centered upon the cross. The cross is the pivot as well as the center of the New Testament, is the exclusive mark of the Christian faith. In his book, The Cross of Christ, John Stott put it best. He said, the whole of Christian theology, the death of Christ, is the central point of history. Here, all of the roads of the past converge, and from the cross, all of the roads into the future proceed. It is at the cross where all of humanity finds pride broken, guilt expunged, love rekindled, hope restored, and character reformed. Now you would think that with such incredible momentum coming into this moment, fulfilling everything by the prophets that they say about the Son of Man, that the disciples would, would, would rejoice 
that this time had finally come. But if you read on in verse 34, you find a different thing. It says there in verse 34, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Now Luke uses two words here to describe the disciples. To understand and to know. Two different words. The first word, to understand, really describes a process of connecting the dots, of gathering facts and making connections and getting the sense of something. The second, to know, is something a little bit deeper. It is a matter of certainty, where it all makes sense, and you know that you know that you know what you know if you know what I mean. And here, we find the disciples at a complete loss. Not because they were, how shall I say it, stupid, with a capital stoop, but because it was a mystery that was unfolding before them and not yet not come to completion. They knew so much about Jesus. His words, his actions, his manner, his behavior, but his mission. The most important part was still a mystery. It had not yet arrived at the cross. It was hidden from them. And in that, they are so much like us. I am so convinced that we live in a world that may hold Jesus in very high regard, but in reality does not know what to make of him and how to take him at heart. Think with me for a moment. Have you ever sought to persuade a friend to consider the gospel of Jesus Christ and and made an appeal that goes a little bit like this? Well, don't you know how much God really loves you? The person says, well, really? How much does he love me? And then you say, well, he sent his son to die for you. That's profoundly theological and totally accurate on the biblical record, John 3, 16. With With the cross at the center of our faith, you can say that with all confidence. That is the essence of John chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. So the Son of Man must be lifted up. There is the cross, lifted up, drawing all men unto himself, so that the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And in verse 16, the one we all know, you, you know it so well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Do you know how much God loves you? Just look at the cross. Now you can say that, but your friend will then end up looking at you unmoved completely. Died for me? Well, that's an odd way to show love. I didn't ask him to do that. How is that an expression of love? It may be an expression of passion, and so for that I am impressed that he actually believed in something so much that he was willing to die for. But what does that have to do with me? I just don't get it. Have you had that sort of response? We live in a world that thinks it has a beat on Jesus, that he was a man of social justice, a prophet of love, a teacher with a code of ethics, the prototypical Nobel Prize winner, but a savior on the cross? the very central part of his being, how can that be made personal? What can that mean to me? It simply does not make sense to the modern mind. 
Now, I have to think that this passage is put at the center of Luke chapter 18 for that very purpose. For before and after, the disciples had witnessed a few individuals for whom the love of Jesus would in fact prove to be utterly profound. It had brought healing. It had broken pride. It had restored hope. It had transformed character. It had changed life. But the mission of Christ was not just for those few. What they saw was just a preview of what was to be expected from the Messiah, the Son of Man, and all that he would fulfill by going to the cross. And Jesus had said, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything said by the prophets will be fulfilled. What may at first appear to be to them just another trip to Jerusalem was now to be seen through the eyes of prophets. And among all of the images painted by the prophets to describe the benefits of the cross, there was one that stands out here in Luke. There are so many to be found. Go to any systematic theology and you will find a whole glossary of terms used to describe what exactly happened on the cross. Words like redemption, the payment was made that sent us free. Words like justification, that their sin, that the sin that separated us from God was set aside. The, the, the one, however, that seems to radiate here in the Gospel of Luke is the word reconciliation. To take that which was broken and make it whole again. It was a mission, an image painted by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53. He, Jesus, took our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Suddenly the pictures of a blind beggar, of a searching rich man, of children, of all who are broken, suddenly begin to make sense. And at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 4, Jesus announced this mission in his very first sermon. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to do what? To bring good news to the poor and to proclaim freedom to the captive and to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind and to release the oppressed and to proclaim the Lord's favor upon humanity to take into hand those whose lives are broken, fragmented, and shattered. It was his mission to take them and make them whole. Now, I don't know the record of your life. Now, I really don't know what burdens you might carry into this place. The sadness, the brokenness, the helplessness, the regret. But I suspect that, like the disciples in Luke 18, when you see Jesus... Gently breaking pride, forgiving sin, rekindling love, restoring hope, healing body and soul, you might quietly ask yourself, will he do the same with me? On the authority of the word of God, let me assure you, Jesus Christ came to take those burdens from you. And you are not alone And you are not abandoned, but you are loved, and by his wounds, you are 
healed. That's the message of the cross. And Paul put it in the simplest terms in Romans chapter 5. God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not just for a few, but for all who would open their hearts to him. And he makes it a personal mission. There was a little playlet some of you may be familiar with. It's called The Long Silence that says it all. Let me read it how it goes. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered across a great plain before God's throne. Some of the group near the front talked heatedly, not cringing with shame, but with belligerence. How can God judge us, they said. How can he know about suffering, snapped the joking brunette. She jerked back her sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, and death. How can God judge us? In another group, a black man lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn. Lynched for no crime but being black. We have suffered the, uh, the suffocated in slave ships. We've been wrenched from loved ones. Toiled till only death gave us release. How can God judge us? Far out upon the plain were hundreds of such groups. Each of them had a complaint against God for the evil and the suffering that had scarred their lives. How lucky God was to live in heaven where everything was all sweetness and light, where there was no weeping, no fear, no hunger, no hatred. Indeed, what did God know about what man had been forced to endure in this world? After all, God leads a pretty sheltered life, they all said. So each group sent out a leader, chosen because he had suffered the most. There was a Jew, a black, an untouchable from India, an illegitimate, a person from Hiroshima, one from a Siberian gulag. In the center of the plain, they consulted with each other, and at last they were ready to present their case. And it was rather simple. Before God would be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. And because he was God, they set certain safeguards to be sure he could not use his divine powers to help himself. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted so that no one will know who was really his father. Let him champion a cause so just but so radical that it brought down all the hate, condemnation, and eliminating efforts of every major traditional and established religious authority. <clears throat> Let him try to describe... What no man has ever seen, tasted, heard, or smelled. Let him try to communicate God to man. Let him be betrayed by his dearest friends. Let him be indicted on false charges, tried before a prejudiced jury, and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him see what it is like to be terribly alone and completely abandoned by every living thing. Let him be tortured. And let him be, let him be killed, let him die. Let him die the most humiliating death with just common thieves. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, there were loud murmurs of approval that went up from that great throng of people. And when the last had finished pronouncing the sentence, there was a long, long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly they all knew God had already 
served his sentence. There stood the cross. And at the cross, there was Christ with arms opened wide. It is at the cross where it all comes together. It is at the cross where Christ takes a stand, where debts are paid, where pain is resolved, where regrets are reconciled, and forgiveness is found. It is from the cross that he reaches out to you with wounded hands, and it is by his wounds that you are healed. As I said, I don't know what you carry into this place, the burden of your life. Sin produces untold consequences among us, each with its own unique form and its own pain. But I do know this. There is a pain, a pain, a path that brings you to the one who loves you and gave himself for you. Jesus said, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the prophets, about the Son of Man, will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. But on the third day, he will rise again. His story and your story converge at the cross. And it erupts with life. We are going to Jerusalem. The week is laid out before us to Good Friday till next Sunday on Easter. The question is, are you with him? Is it a a journey you will take with him? Taking his hand and following. And in that, will you let him then take your infirmity and carry your sorrow? And in joining him, will you find life? God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, in all of this, we see the invitation to join you. And in joining you, Lord, to add to you the whole burden of sin, the burden that we've been carrying ourselves and one which is too great for any of us to bear. And we fully confess that, Lord, sin has weighed us down. It has broken us. It has has taken out large chunks of our very being and Lord, as we stand in this world, we are not whole. And yet, Lord, you come to us. You take us in hand, and Lord, you guide us through a journey, a journey that leads to life, and it is one in which your holiness is poured out to make us whole once again. So, Lord, in our hearts right now, we give ourselves to you. We join you on this journey. We We look to you for life, and Lord, we give you thanks for all these things. The favor of grace rests gentle upon us. And in this day and in this moment, we give ourselves to you with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving made in the name of the wonderful name 
of the one who loved us and gave himself for us, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.